0: area 941 podcasts are produced and distributed by community powered 94.1 kpfa radio please help support area 941 at kpfa.org this is the area 941 radio walensky podcast i'm richard walensky And we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Andrew Altschul, who has a novel, The Gringa. This is the third novel. The others are Lady Lazarus and Deus Ex Machina. Andrew Altschul is the founding books editor at The Rumpus, director of creating writing at Colorado State. Before we get into the book, The Gringa, since we've been sitting now for over a month in our homes, I'd like to ask whether there's a connection between The Gringa, which tells the story of the radicalization of an individual based on the life, sort of, of Lori Berenson. The book deals with radicalization in the wake of American missteps and hypocrisy. Is the failure over COVID-19 a product of Trump, or are we looking at something deeper in the American psyche or even something that could be called an American rot?
1: Thank you, Richard, first of all, for having me on the show, and second of all, for starting with, um, with a very easy question. <laughs> we're, we're just going to start big, I guess. Um, you know, I think that the way that the pandemic has been handled in this country Is yet another symptom of some really long-standing pathologies in this country. Um, The first and most obvious one is is the way that over over previous generations, any idea that there's any such thing as a social compact or civic responsibility has has really been discarded in favor of an idea of freedom that is not so much freedom to, but freedom from. Freedom from any kind of obligation to your to your country or to your fellow man and woman. And we can see that in some of these crowds that have assembled outside of state houses, which are, are really quite small crowds, although they've been covered in a kind of sensationalist fashion, holding up signs saying things like, your life is not more important than my freedom. And I think when we when we come to terms with the fact that we're in a country where people think that their desire to get their nails done or get a new tattoo or walk around a shopping mall or go to a movie is at least as important if not more important than the lives of other people who who literally could be sickened and could die from this virus. I think we're we're in a really bizarre place that's not sustainable. This grows like I said out of a long-standing idea of American exceptionalism where we really feel at some deep level that we are superior to better than, stronger than, smarter than, more advanced than other countries. And that deeply false idea about where America fits into the world is directly responsible for the ways that for the past, certainly for the past hundred years, and many would say the past 240 some odd years, we have felt compelled and entitled to project military and economic power around the globe and tell people how to live. And when they don't live the way that we want them to, or when they don't govern themselves the way that we want them to, or when they don't arrange their economies the way that we want them to, we feel entitled to invade militarily, arrange for military coups, and arrange for crippling embargoes, impose economic penalties, that infallibly, you know, starve and kill the poorest and most vulnerable in those countries, and so you know, I don't want to draw too direct a line from American interventions in the Western Hemisphere to what's happening in our country now, but I think that in in a certain way, they're both symptoms of, of the same failure to really think clearly about who we are as a people and how our country fits into the rest of the world.
0: In that sense, I guess, and we'll get more specifically into the Barons and. Sure. Leonora Gelb element here. But in that sense, in a book like The Gringa, are you more Leonora, do you think, or Andre, her biographer? I think most fiction writers will tell you that there's
1: there's a part of them in every character that they write. I mean, certainly one of the ways that, that we avoid writing caricatures and the, and the ways we develop well-rounded characters, to keep out of the territory of villains and victims and saints and good guys and bad guys is by making sure that we can relate at some level to every character that we write. So, so at that level, you know, every character in the book is me in, in some respect. But the tension between the Leonore Gelb character, who is a, 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 an American woman in her 20s, who's gone down to Peru and gotten herself wrapped up with a leftist militant group and ends up tried in a military court and sent to a military prison for life, And Andres, who is a sort of hapless, uh, layabout, failed novelist expat who has moved to Peru about 10 years later, following 9-11 and the Iraq invasion, and really just wants to get away from politics, wants to get away from America and its misadventures, wants to just kind of live a carefree life. And in, in writing Leonora Gelb's story, or trying to write her story, you know, he finds out how impossible that is, especially for Americans, to simply renounce all of this privilege, to renounce all of this history, to to say that you are not American anymore, even as you are living this carefree life of privilege in the middle of a, a developing country where you know most people d- don't have any anything like the opportunities that you have. I mean, these are these are the things that Andres is learning, and so. You know, Andres is close to my heart in certain ways. I I, I lived in Peru for a couple of years in my late 20s. I like to think I wasn't quite the objectionable, irresponsible figure that he was. But there's no doubt that I got a a lot more out of living in Peru for a couple of years than Peru got out of me living there for a couple of years. I was a young man then. I don't think I really entirely understood kind of the ethical trickiness or ugliness of of what I was doing and so in some ways by calling attention to the ways that the Andres character really is sort of ethically challenged and has so much to learn about who he is and who his country is certainly I can relate to him at that level at the same time you know Leonor Gelb is someone who has come to Peru wanting to do some good in the world understanding much more than Andres does what it means to be an American and how much destruction and misery America has projected around the world over the course of decades or, or even centuries. And she wants to try to live a life that is better than that, that pays someone somewhere back for all that damage. She doesn't quite know how to do it. And the way she goes about it turns out to be a series of really poor analyses and blunders that visits just more pain on this country that she'd wanted to to help in this country that she claimed to love. And for me, one of the things that I was working out while I was thinking my way through this character is my own political leanings, my own political commitments, the ways that I would enthusiastically claim to be someone who has leftist sympathies, whose, whose political views are, are pretty far to the left of mainstream American political views. And yet, you know, I've never really done anything that has put my safety or my welfare at risk in the name of those beliefs and here was somebody who did and it worked out very very badly but at the same time i wanted to try to understand you know what could make someone go from the level of you know leftist thought and and having certain political beliefs to really going all in and and standing by them even if it brought unhappiness or damage to her own life. So, in that sense, I relate to her
0: equally, but there's just very different ways that I see these two characters. Andrew Altschult, let's go back a bit. The story is kind of based on the story of an actual American who got caught up in Peru. Now, you have a fictional group called the Philosophers the real group of Lori Berenson was the Tupac Amaru Revolutionary Movement. How did you come upon her and what made you decide that using her life as kind of a template, sort of similar to what you did in Lady Lazarus, using her life as a template to explore these issues of American exceptionalism?
1: When I lived in Peru, it was the late... 1990s and Lori Berenson was arrested late in 1995 and her trial took place early in 1996 and she was sentenced to life in prison. She was eventually given a, a civilian retrial and her sentence was commuted to to 20 years of which she served 15 until she was paroled in 2010. I moved down to Peru in 1998 and while it had been a couple of years since the trial, she was not infrequently still, in the news every time there was some visit from you know some representative of the american government or somebody like Jesse Jackson trying to plead for clemency in her case it would get churned up in the news again every time there was some movement for example towards a civilian retrial it, it would get churned up again and she was really quite at that point quite a loathed figure in peru she was the gringa who had come down and tried to restart a war that had ended several years earlier with 70,000 Peruvians dead. This was how she was always portrayed in the media. And the truth of the matter is that she didn't do herself any favors by how she carried herself. She was presented to the media before her trial. And you know I think the expectation would be that she would say something about having made mistakes or gotten caught up with the wrong people or having not really understood what was going on around her. But instead, she appeared on National television, red in the face, shaking her fists, bald, screaming about the misdeeds of the Peruvian government, every one of which was fairly accurate, I should say, but it was an epic PR failure, if nothing else. And it really sort of sealed her fate with the general public. And so whenever she would come back into the news, that clip would be played over and over again of this red faced American woman screaming at Peru about what a terrible country Peruvians lived in. I think that before I moved there, I had probably heard her name, probably knew some basic outlines of the case. But what really fascinated and fixated and and kind of appalled me was to see the reactions of the people around me every time she was brought back into the news, almost without exception, no matter what your politics were, no matter what your socioeconomic background was, Peruvians loathed her so i at some point wanted to really understand kind of what that reaction was and what its historical context was and i sort of started reading around about her story a little bit more and reading about the the background of the mrta the tupacamaru movement and also the shining path which was you know a much larger and more destructive movement that was that was responsible for about 50% of those 70,000 deaths in the 80s and early 90s. So this story kind of stayed with me in the back of my mind for many years. Every time something came into the news, I would get interested in it again. By this point, I was living back in the US. But of course, I was aware of when her sentence from the military court was vacated and she was retried in civilian court. I was aware of when her sentence had changed. And I just couldn't quite shake this story. I happened to be. In Peru, in 2010, shortly before she was released from prison, and of course, you know, granting her parole occasioned a whole other outpouring of, of fury in the media and death threats against her lawyers and against her, and I think even against the the judge that approved the parole. There was a real circus around it. The attorney general of the country stepped in, claimed to have found procedural abnormalities, and called off the parole. But then. The parole was put back on a few weeks later. And so at that point, I had just finished writing my second novel, Deus Ex Machina. And I was in that phase of trying to decide what my next project would be. And watching this footage and seeing how things progressed with her parole and her release, it just kind of clicked. I I mean, I realized that in the back of my head, I'd been thinking about this all along as a story that I would try to write one day and the stars aligned. So I got started. But you know, that's already nine years ago at this point. It took me eight years to write the novel because it was such a complicated project. And then, of course, you know, another year to get it out into the public. And it was
0: just released in early March of this year. You made this choice to have the biographer's story work as counterpoint to her story, sort of similar to Lady Lazarus. What prompted going back to that almost Citizen Kane-like idea. And I
1: should say though, though probably many people who've read both books won't believe me, but I didn't even realize the sort of structural similarities between the Gringa and Lady Lazarus until until very very late in the process and then I kind of my eyebrows raised I was like, wow, these books have a certain have have something in common. But what really happened in this case, I was fascinated with this figure of Leonora Gelb, who is, you know, inspired very loosely by by the the basic outlines of the Laurie Berenson affair, but as soon as I started writing it, it became absolutely clear to me that there were ethical and artistic pitfalls around writing this story that were unlike anything that I'd ever encountered with any material that I had taken on before.
0: What do you mean by that?
1: So this is a story that takes place in a foreign country. It takes place in in a country whose political system and whose socioeconomic realities are vastly different from most Americans, certainly from my own. I'm a privileged white male writer who was lucky enough to be able to spend two relatively carefree years in Peru. Does that qualify me to tell a story of national trauma like the one that Berenson kind of stumbled her way into? Absolutely not. Add to that, that I'm writing across gender, I'm writing across culture, I'm writing across a language barrier. And, and what that added up to was a real sort of crisis for me in terms of thinking about my own rights to this material, about all of the many, many ways that I could do it badly, that I could be one way or another purporting to, to speak for the people who, who really suffered from these events, to tell a story that other people have much more at stake in than I do. And I should add, you know, this was, you know, in the early days of writing this story, six, seven, eight years ago, this was long before something like the American Dirt debacle. This was before I think many of us had ever really sort of heard this term of cultural appropriation. And I certainly didn't have that terminology in my head, but that's what I was up against. I understood at a kind of gut artistic level That I had to find a way to write this material that was responsible, that was ethical, and that really took seriously the experiences of the people who suffered and died in this conflict, rather than to center it, as so much American writing is centered, around the inner life or the emotional journey of a privileged American. Now, that raised a conundrum almost immediately because the figure that I was most interested in and felt like I wanted to write the novel about was precisely that privileged American. And so it took me many, many years to figure out how to write a story that took other people's experiences at least as seriously as it took hers. And so the Andres character arose because I had made several trips back to Peru in the 2010s I had gone down four or five times partly to familiarize myself with Lima because I had never lived in Lima. I didn't know the city very well, but that's where the majority of the novel takes place, but also to talk to as many people as I could. People, you know, from all walks of life who'd had, you know, very very varied experiences during the war, student activists, people who had been in one way or another associated with militant groups, people who had been in the army, journalists, lawyers, sort of everyday people who had lost family members or had family members disappeared. One of my main sources down there is a, a journalist named Stephanie Boyd, a, a Canadian journalist who's lived in Peru since the early 90s. And she introduced me to a lot of the people who I interviewed. And one day I was, I was just having a, a drink or dinner with her and, and I was really discouraged. I, I just was not able to figure out how to write this novel in a way that I would feel Comfortable with. And she said, Well, what's happening? You've been working on this for years. And I said, You know, I'm not sure I can write it. And she said, Why? And I said, Well, because I don't feel like I have a right to tell these stories. I mean, who am I to tell a story like this? And she looked at me and she said, Well, you know, in a strange way, you're Lori Berenson. And I sort of did a double take and I wasn't exactly sure what she meant. And she said, Well, but think about it. You know, she's someone who came down here with the best of intentions you know whatever that means whatever it's worth very little she knew something about the country and its history but not very much she spoke spanish but not like a native speaker she was committed to the politics of peru but not the way that a real that an actual native peruvian could ever be simply by virtue of being an american and yet she inserted herself into this story got wrapped up into a story that she only partially understood and made a huge mess of it. And in the process, you know, ruined the next 15 or 20 years of her life. Don't you see the parallels between you trying to write this story, and Laurie Berenson trying to insert herself into that story. And I had to think about this for a really long time. But eventually, that sort of very loose parallel is what led to my creation of this narrator who you know, looks a lot like me in certain ways. He doesn't belong here. He knows he is the worst possible person to tell this story because of his ignorance, because of his privilege, because of his own ambivalence towards the politics. And he knows that he's going to make a huge mess of it in the process. So discovering that sort of perspective was what enabled me to, I think, create just the right amount of distance between the narration of the novel and the character of Leonora Gelb to be able to weave in these other stories that frankly are much more complicated and much more important than the story of, of one American woman's you know, coming of age or spiritual development or, or whatever you want to call it. I needed to write a novel that had a much wider view than that. And it turned out that I needed Andres in order to accomplish
0: that. I was going to ask what you learned about yourself and your view of America in writing the book, but it occurred to me that what you learned is exactly what Andres learns. Is that correct? I
1: think in some regards, yes. I I would like to think that I was a quicker study (laughs) than Andres. (laughs) I would like to think that I learned these things out of my own intellectual and cultural curiosity and sensitivity. And Andres really Really needs things shoved in his face. He really needs to be shown how blind he is. What a selfish position it is to say, I want to live a life outside of politics. I want to forget where I came from just because I have maybe enough money in my savings account to do that. For me, it was both a slower process, but I hope a slightly less ignominious process. You know, when I lived in Peru in, in the late 20s, I don't think I was quite as irresponsible or insensitive as, as Andres is, but there's no doubt I was there for my own enjoyment. I learned Spanish. Most of my friends were Peruvian. I wasn't quite the sort of Hemingway esque expat who only hangs out with other expats. Nevertheless, you know, like I said, I got a whole lot out of those two years. They were a period of, of tremendous growth for me. And one of the ways that I grew is by coming to see slowly. The problems with what I was doing. And certainly, in retrospect, over the last 20 years since I lived there, I've really come to have a very mixed feeling about that time in my life and to see it as, in my own small way, yet another outgrowth of the way Americans see the rest of the world. That is, as a kind of backdrop for their own ambitions or their own desires. Even a cursory trip through the genre that we like to refer to as expat literature will i think show up that problem very quickly the way that so few of these novels really give a darn about the lives of the people of these countries that Americans travel to they were they are always about the growth or the inner life or the emotional journey of the american and in the same way you know the two years that i lived in peru was so much more about my own desires and my own pleasure than about any sense of obligation to contribute something to this country. I think I've come to see that on my own over the years, whereas Andres really has to have a lot of people get in his face and make that clear to him. But you know, the changes in attitude are not dissimilar.
0: He's in Babylonia. Is there a Babylonia? I looked it up. I couldn't find one. There is not a Babylonia. My editor
1: informed me that there is a Calle Babylonia in Lima, but it's a very small street in a kind of far-flung neighborhood. So that has nothing to do with the Babylonia. When I lived in Peru, I lived in Cusco. That's what I thought it was. (laughs) Yeah. Cusco is a town with a lot of expatriates and a lot of tourists it's kind of the gateway to machu picchu which of course is peru's you know major tourism attraction and it's a party town if you are living there it is not hard to find a good time whenever you want and so jokingly a lot of the locals and a lot of the expats refer to cusco you know just just among themselves as babylonia it's also a nod to one of my favorite short stories of all time which is f scott fitzgerald's Babylon Revisited, which in its own way is about an American man who, because of a series of tragedies in his life, has come to see exactly what an irresponsible and arrogant, privileged jerk he's been and has come to a place of regret and has come to a place where he is really desperate to make amends in one way or another. And there are a few little nods to Babylon Revisited scattered through the Gringa. So referring to the city as Babylonia in part is one of those.
0: I was in Peru for a couple of weeks in the late 80s. Wow. Tough time to be there. We flew into Lima and had to go directly to the hotel because it was martial law outside. Right. I uh, got to see, you know, after eating a wonderful dinner in Miraflores, we took buses down to the Nazca lines, yep. and then you see the difference between Lima and Miraflores and the poverty, and later on went up to Puno, where our bus got hit by rocks on the way out, Right, and then Cusco, which was, you're right, it's completely different. Yeah, felt very safe, that whole area. Cusco
1: somehow, I mean, I don't, I don't want to minimize it, because the dirty war, the, the armed conflict that the government fought against the Shining Path from 1980- 1992 affected people all over the country, including in the state of Cusco. And of course, there are thousands of families in Cusco who lost people in that conflict on both sides of the conflict. The city itself, as I understand it, managed to stay pretty calm throughout most of the conflict. Certainly, what happened in Lima, especially in the last two years, 1990, 91, 92, where you had kidnappings and assassinations in broad daylight. You had car bombs, one infamous car bomb in Miraflores itself. They had been trying to leave a a van packed with explosives outside of a bank, but the engine stalled outside of an apartment building and it blew off the facade of the building and killed 25 residents. That stuff, as I understand it, didn't happen so much in Cusco. But because Cusco is a much poorer city and its region is, is a much poorer region than Lima, of course, the people of that part of the country were were much more vulnerable to what was happening. And the majority of the war years were fought in the provinces, largely the Ayacucho province, but parts of the Cusco province and other central parts of the country. We couldn't say that it was unscathed, but the city itself, luckily, didn't bear the worst brunt of
0: it. Did you feel constrained at all by the fact that you were following Berenson's life? Because I know that, you know, sometimes you want to take an outline a little bit beyond where it was going to go. And in this case, you sort of needed to stay within a certain track. There were variations, but you needed to stay within that track. Did you find that constraining at all?
1: I found it constraining at times and and liberating at times as well. And figuring out exactly how to do that dance with the actual history, you know, it was, it was an ongoing process. I mean, sometimes it was, it was quite an enjoyable one at, a, at an intellectual or an artistic level. But, you know, really what makes it work or made it possible for me to write the book is that really there's so little known about what happened to Laurie Berenson. And I, and I don't know or claim to know anything more than anyone who makes a reasonably diligent search of the press than anyone else. Could know I don't have any, you know, inside information about who she is or what she was thinking at any given time, and it really felt important to me that I make this my own story. That I take those those very very faint outlines of her story and fill them in in a way that was true to the characters and the themes that I was investigating. What I mean by that is, Lori Berenson was in Peru for about a year before she was arrested. When she was arrested, she was accused of being part of a group that was plotting to invade the Peruvian Congress and take legislators hostage. You know, the government claimed to have found, you know, a large weapons cache, stolen security uniforms for capital security, blueprints of the congressional building, and in her trial, she was really portrayed as this almost like a comic villain, this gringa terrorist mastermind. Whereas You know, she was renting a house in a suburb in which a dozen or so members of the MRTA were living. There were mixed reports about whether she herself was living there at the time of her arrest, but she certainly had lived there at some point, and she was one of the two signatories on the lease. Berenson's story was always, I had no idea who the people in my house were, I've never heard of this group. I have no interest in their politics. The whole thing is news to me. It's a major case of mistaken identity. The whole thing is a frame-up and a fraud, and I am absolutely innocent from sunrise to sunset. And both of those stories seem so utterly preposterous to me. Obviously, the reality lies somewhere in between. And the key to understanding that reality would be to have some understanding of what that year was like, that she was renting this house and living with the members of this militant group. But of course, she's never talked about that. I've never found a single interview where anyone has
0: even asked
1: her about that.
0: Has she completely disappeared from the scene? Because when I went to Wikipedia, it said, she comes back in 2015, end of story.
1: Right. You know, the years that she was in prison, she had done a couple of interviews with Amy Goodman of Democracy Now. And I I think she has done at least one interview with her again since returning five years ago. But as far as I know, she has laid quite low and I can hardly blame her if one could hardly blame her for never wanting to be in the public eye again for the rest of her life. She has a young son who I think at this point is probably, I want to say, 15 or 16, who she is raising I very much hope that she's able to find a quiet life outside of the public eye. She has certainly kind of lived through enough drama. At the same time, I will also say that I haven't looked very hard for exactly these reasons, because I felt like it was enough of an ethical tightrope walk to take the outlines of a real person's story and write my own version of it. That if I knew too much about her, or if I were able to talk to her, to to hear from her own mouth what her story is, the bar would be raised in terms of my obligations to tell a certain kind of truth or to write a certain kind of nonfiction. And I didn't want to put myself or the novel in that kind of box. So there may be more information about her whereabouts since 2015, but I I just haven't looked into it.
0: Tying this back to Lady Lazarus, some of the same issues would have applied then as well about Kurt Cobain. Well, yes and no.
1: I mean, Lady Lazarus, which purports to be the biography of a young woman whose biography, or her birth certificate anyway, looks a lot like Frances Bean Cobain. Her, her father and mother were both sort of colossally famous punk and pop rock stars. Her father committed suicide when she was quite young. And, and in, in Lady Lazarus, she grows up to be a confessional poet and quite famous in her own right, with all the attendant drama that that entails. A a couple of things sort of set these two books apart. First of all, Lady Lazarus is quite unabashedly satirical. It takes characters who may look a little bit like characters in, in real life, and it blows them up. It makes them so much larger than life. It goes so far over the top in the ways that it pokes fun at celebrity culture and rock stars and confessional poets and our cultural obsession with celebrity suicides But that book, in some ways, is on safe ground at saying nobody in their right mind could try to read this as some kind of biography or nonfiction. There were things, sort of smaller nuances that the two books had in common, one of which was very, very long conversations with lawyers that I had to have in both cases before we could go ahead with publication to make sure that I wasn't using any kind of privileged biographical information that could entitle quite reasonably anyone to think that I had invaded their privacy or had published personal information about them without their permission. But in a larger artistic sense, I think the novels are are quite different. I mean, Lady Lazarus does not want to make any serious claims about American politics, except at at the very general sort of cultural politics level, whereas the gringa is really aiming itself quite squarely at certain tendencies of American thought and American politics that we discussed earlier, Richard, and really wants to take those things head on
0: and see what it finds. Andrew Alchel, let's talk a little about your biography. I went online and there's very little. Where did you grow up and what brought you to be a yeah. writer?
1: <laughs> I ask myself the same questions fairly frequently. Uh, I grew up on the East Coast. I grew up in New Jersey in a fairly tony suburb of New York that probably looks a lot like Cannondale, the suburb where Leonora Gelb grows up in the gringa. I went to school on the East Coast at Brown University, but after graduating, I moved to the West Coast almost immediately. And I spent most of the next 25 years there with the exception of those two years that I lived in Peru. I studied creative writing for graduate school at University of California, Irvine in the mid-90s and moved to the Bay Area in the early 2000s, where I had a Stegner fellowship at Stanford for a couple of years, stuck around there to teach at Stanford for the next, uh, I think, four years. And then I got my first tenure track teaching job at San Jose State, where I was also the director of the Center for Literary Arts for six years. And in 2015, I was offered a position at Colorado State. And so my wife and newborn child at the time we moved out here in the summer of 2015 to Fort Collins and that's where I'm talking to you from today.
0: What prompted you to start writing Lady Lazarus? You'd written short stories before, I assume.
1: Yeah, I I mean I've kind of always written, you know, I'm not one of these people who has a story to tell about the day I decided to become a writer. You know, I wrote silly stories in in grade school. My first real achievement as a writer was I won my town public library's story contest for fourth graders uh, when I was 10 or 11 years old or something like that. But I didn't study creative writing in undergrad. I didn't. I, I wasn't even an English major. I was a psychology major. But I was still writing kind of in my spare time at night. It was the kind of thing that, that people who knew me knew about me was that I wrote. And when I moved out to California, I lived in San Diego at first. And I I just did a series of kind of silly, odd jobs, office temp, or you know, proofreading classified ads for a weekly newspaper for a couple of years just to make rent because I had sort of decided, I, I want to see if there's something to this writing thing. I want to put it more centrally in my life for a little while. And so I wrote many stories over those few years. And eventually I showed them to somebody, I can't even remember who, who said to me, well, have you thought about going to graduate school? And I said, graduate school for what? Because I didn't, Know that there was such a thing as an MFA degree in creative writing. This was the early '90s. You know, when you when you wanted information about things, you couldn't Google it. You know, you had to go to the library and do old-fashioned research. And so, when I came to know that there were such things as graduate programs in creative writing, I did my research and I applied, and somehow was was offered a slot at one of the better programs in the country at UC Irvine uh, with Jeffrey Wolf and Judith Grossman and had a couple of really remarkably wonderful years there. I mean, I went into Irvine as someone who was interested in writing, and I came out as a writer. And what I mean by that is I came out understanding so much more deeply and broadly what it means to write, what kind of commitment it takes, what the world is like for people who want to make this their career or their calling. I had such encouragement from my professors. I studied with with a number of really remarkably good writers, many of whom have become quite successful since then. So by the time I got out of there, there was really no looking back.
0: And Lady Lazarus, you just started writing the novel? So Lady Lazarus,
1: I started when I was at Stanford. It was 2003. I had come into Stanford with what I thought was the makings of a pretty good short story collection. I felt like I needed a, a, a couple more stories and I needed to revise a few of the stories I'd already written. And so I spent my first year of this two-year fellowship bringing short stories into the workshop, either new ones or revisions of older ones. Towards the end of that first year, I really started to feel like, okay, you know, I've, I've taken a lot of these stories as far as they can go. I want to sort of sink my teeth into a larger project. And I'd had this, this vague thought process in the back of my head for a couple of years at that point, thinking in terms of celebrity and music especially. I had done some music journalism in the previous decade. I had also written some graduate level long papers about Sylvia Plath and Anne Sexton. And it struck me the ways that confession as something that started as this kind of literary trend in the 1950s and 1960s had really become the default mode of just about everybody in American public life. And so I had this kind of vague constellation of ideas in my head that somehow coalesced around this figure who who I ended up naming Calliope Bird Morath as the daughter of this famous suicide and this colossally successful musician and her own sort of efforts to find her own voice in the ways that they manifested themselves in in a poetics that's fits- pretty comfortably into that tradition that we call confessional poetry. And once I got started, I just had so much fun writing it that it became a novel in the course of a couple of years.
0: And at that point, you were able to get an agent, get it published.
1: Yeah, this was actually one of those happy stories, or at least it started out happy, where I, I was able to get an agent on the strength of the, of the short stories. And when I showed her the first, I think it was maybe 150 pages of what would become Lady Lazarus, She was so enthusiastic about it that she said, well, I think we can sell this right now before you even finish it. And we did. We found an editor, um, a wonderful editor at Harcourt, the publishing company previously known as Harcourt, who bought the novel essentially on spec and said, you know, take a couple of years to finish it, and we're really excited to publish it. Well, so that was the happy part of the story. The sad part of the story was that about four months before the novel was published in April of 2008... Harcourt was absorbed into a larger publishing company, Houghton Mifflin. And essentially, what that meant was that my publisher no longer existed when the book came out. So it turns out, in retrospect, not to have been a great decision to have sold the unfinished novel when I did. You know, Houghton Mifflin Harcourt still published the book, but everybody who had worked on it, you know, had left the sinking ship or had been laid off. And Pretty much all of the books that Harcourt had scheduled for that season didn't get very much attention from the new parent company. So it didn't work out that well for Lady Lazarus.
0: (laughs) And poor The Gringa comes out just when book
1: tours are canceled. Well, my good friend David Shields wrote me an email a couple of days after The Gringa was published. And he started it off by saying, Andrew, there's bad timing. And then there is bad timing. Yeah, it, it hasn't been great. I mean, the, the book was published the day before the World Health Organization declared the pandemic. And I was already on the East Coast. I had five events set up in the first week and all but one of them were canceled. A total of 15 events were canceled over the over the next six weeks. Um, I do not have very good timing in the publishing world. So yeah, it's kind of undeniable at this point.
0: What happened with Deus Ex Machina?
1: Was that Okay. That was less dramatic. So Deus Ex Machina was published in 2011 by Counterpoint, which is a a wonderful small press out of Berkeley, actually. There were no global pandemics at the time. Counterpoint didn't cease to exist a month before uh, Deus Ex Machina was published. I did lose my editor who, who left for... Another publishing house. Sometime during the process, I lost my publicist. These are more kind of garden variety problems that every every writer in the world breaks out their tiny little violin to to um, to gripe about things like that. But that was that was a much more normal publishing process, certainly.
0: Have you ever heard of a book called A Likely Story by Donald Westlake? I have heard of it. I don't. I haven't read it. I don't know much
1: about it, but I, the title's familiar. Yeah,
0: yeah. You should read it. Okay, trust me on that. Okay. <laughs> Has um, has Hollywood come a calling, or is that not happening? I think
1: they may have, but they have the wrong phone number, so I'm not getting the messages.
0: Uh, this book has been getting a lot of reviews. Have people in Peru read it and come back to you about it?
1: Well, I don't know about any media coverage in Peru. At the moment, there's not a Spanish translation, though I hope passionately hope that there will be at some point. I've had a number of my my friends and associates in Peru read the book partly because like i said earlier you know i felt very very insecure about my my mastery of the history or even of the spanish language I, I you know i speak pretty strong spanish but not peruvian and to be writing passages in peruvian dialect or slang you know i felt like i needed eyes on it to look at the the spanish to look at the history but also just to look at the sensibilities and I sent it to a couple of friends in Peru Peruvian friends and 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 also some northerners and I said look you know I don't want to know how good it is if you think it's good that's great but but I want you to call me out on everything I want you to tell me every place where I've written bs I've, I want you to tell me every place where there is no way on this green earth that a Peruvian would say this would think this would act like this would do this you know i want you to call out every gringo misunderstanding and self-indulgence and stereotype that worked its way into the book you know cuz i i want to get rid of every single one of them and they did they were very generous with me i think i was pleased at how infrequently they found me to have crossed some kind of line but they found me to have crossed lines, and I was incredibly grateful to them for pointing those things out to me at the level of dialogue, at the level of Spanish vocabulary, at the level of, of uh, my understanding of the history. And those people, for me, they're the heroes of the book because they made it a much, much better book
0: small places where you got it wrong and they just corrected you on the timing, things like that? They
1: corrected me on the timing. They corrected me on the, on the motivations. They corrected me on the context. I mean, one of the really interesting things that I learned through this process, through interviewing all these people, is that the nature of, of a war story is that no two people tell the story the same way, right? So in Peru, neighbors will disagree heatedly about what one would think would be the most unobjectionable facts, a date, a statistic, a body count, whatever it might be. They will disagree. They will get red in the face, fighting, banging on the table about these things. And for a while, that really had me in handcuffs trying to figure out, well, how do I write a story that feels accurate to the history when people are telling me wildly different histories? And finally, another friend of mine, a man named Camilo Leon, who had been a student activist in the late nineties and was telling me about that experience. I was, I was lamenting to him this inability to get a a really kind of stable grasp on some of the history. And, And that's exactly what he said to me. He said, well, that's because nobody agrees on the history, Andrew. And if you try to write a novel where the history is kind of made concrete in some kind of way that claims an authority over this fact versus that fact, this statistic versus that statistic, then that's going to be the bogus narrative. The only authentic narrative here is going to be one that absolutely cops to the impossibility of telling the story in an authoritative way. And so that's another reason that the Andres character comes along because he runs into exactly that difficulty of telling any kind of authoritative history about the war because there's no such thing.
0: Andrew Altschul,
1: what are you working on now? I am working on trying to master all of the various online platforms on which writers nowadays have to do their events. I think I've done events on Zoom, on Crowdcast, on Facebook Live, on YouTube Live, now on Zencaster with you, Richard. It's kind of been a full-time job just trying to sort of tread water with a book that's coming out in an environment like this, where I can't hit the road to go to bookstores, where I can't speak directly to readers, where a lot of the press that might have been springing up around it is has gotten diverted into stories about COVID nineteen. I do have, you know, short stories that I've been tinkering with. I've been taking notes for what may end up being a, what I'm thinking of as a, a cycle of novellas about expatriates, American expatriates, and the ways that they, you know, just really bungle things up in other parts of the world, and the ways that they really get a lot of things wrong about the rest of the world. So one of these days, I'm going to get back to being a really dedicated writer and pick up on one of those projects. But right now, most of my energy has gone into the gringa.
0: I'm just reading Chris Hedges talking about how what we're looking now is the complete decline and fall of the United States. He quotes George Packer. I'm sure you've read that article too. Is it that bad? Are we just... Roman Empire at the very end and the big collapse? Oh, Richard,
1: you started off
0: with a big question that I was
1: unqualified to answer, and we're going to wrap up with one. I'm someone with pretty strong political opinions, and I spend probably way too much time thinking about questions like this, which is not to say I think I have a very good answer. In more optimistic days, I want to think that one of the things this epidemic will do is force Americans to come face-to-face with some of the real pathologies in our politics and in our culture, and perhaps occasion a kind of national rethinking of what we want our country to stand for and whom we want it to stand for and, and how we want it to function. I don't know that I, that I can feel any great optimism that that will happen, but that's really the thing that I'm, that I'm hoping for, because this epidemic has really exposed so much of the rot in this country, political, and economic and social and cultural. And if we don't take this as a cue to start thinking about better ways of being, then yes, I think it's possible that we're in a kind of Roman empire kind of situation. It'll take a while, but I don't know that my son's going to grow up in a United States that looks anything like the one I grew up in. That's the best answer I've got for you. (laughs) I wish I had something brighter
0: or happier to say, but I really just don't know. You've been listening to an interview with Andrew Altschul, whose novel is titled The Gringa. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com. You can listen to other interviews, either as Radio Walensky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast.